So today, assumption versus reality. Big words, aren't they? But before I start on this, I have a little chant I do, which is part of our um, teaching. Namo tassa bhagavadu arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavadu arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavadu arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammam Sangham Namasami. As I was reflecting on this topic for today, done that for a few days, um, it's interesting, it became very apparent to me that <laughs> most of our life is made up of assumptions. <laughs> if, you know, you you see the amount of, at this present time, the amount of information we can have access to on the internet, the amount of um, things that come our way, you know, on the scientific level, on a medical level, on a um, social level, political level, there, are so much there is so much information about so many things nothing we can't really have any proof for. We're not ourselves, maybe scientists or politicians or um, medical doctors or um, any other um, form of information that we can um, have access to. So we find ourselves very often living in a world where we think we know because we can listen to them, read them, we can think about them even, but actually we have no experience of these things, do we? And that's what is, you know, the, 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 the meaning of assumption is to imagine, to suppose something, to position. You maybe have a theory about things, you maybe have some views, some opinions about whatever. But we are left very much um, with this um, perhaps inability to experience everything we, we, you know, regarding the information we are receiving on a daily basis sometimes. Mm -hmm. You notice that. And that goes together also with the teaching of the Buddha, the Buddhism. There are many assumptions about the Buddha, about the teaching, so many schools that we can read about here listen to the teaching of those different schools of Buddhism, different parts of the world, Japan, China, Korea, South, um, Southeast Asia, and so on. And some of them can be even contradictory. Some of those schools contradicting each other or teaching something very, very different from, let's say, my tradition, which is Theravada, or the, the way of the elders tradition. Theravada actually means the way of the elders you know Pali. So using the, the, the dialogue, the scriptures, uh, the, the teaching of the Buddhas, 
often um, put together in the form of dialogues, in the form of uh, the Buddha dialoguing with his student, with his disciple, with his monks, with his nun, nuns. And so um, that leaves us very confused, doesn't it? We don't know yet. We presume maybe it's wrong, we presume it's right, but we still don't know for ourselves, do we? So that kind of uh, uh, state of mind, you know, supposing something, imagining something, thinking something, thinking that something is right without any proof, thinking something is wrong without any proof, what does it leave us with? Hmm? More confusion. And sometimes we're not aware of this. We say, oh, I'm really restless and I'm really confused. I'm really, uh, you know, I don't know anything anymore. I've read all these books. I'm more confused than ever. I've, I've watched so many films on science. I just don't know what they're talking about. I've uh, studied Buddhism for years. I still don't know what, you know, I still don't know what's what kind of thing. And so, one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism very much was this um, incredible commitment to the truth. Now, when I was considering the truth, I thought, this is a big word, you know, reality, let's say. Big word, which reality? There's so many of them, according to the many different school of thoughts. There's many truths, many, many realities, and so on. But in Buddhist teaching, really, reality is actually uh, more or less, you could say, synonym to Dhamma. You know, what is real, what is the reality. And a lot of our times is spent on assumption, on imagining life, on creating things we have which has not necessarily any proof. We can't be proven. You look, you know, just check yourself in the morning when you get up. What do you assume in the morning? Have you noticed? The day maybe is going to be terrible. You're thinking of the, all the potential problems and obstacles that you're going to encounter through the day. Um, you're going to maybe think about the strike that you heard about yesterday and which might destroy your day. Or whatever. If you're more, let's say... Um, you know, concerned with keeping your mind very positive, you might assume all kind of things which might not be true either. <laughs> Life is going to be great, wonderful, people are going to be really happy around me, I'm such a good person, I'm so loving and caring, so bright. What else am I going to have but just loving, caring people around me? I'm sure some of you have gone through this dis disillusionment, haven't you? <laughs> or we can feel depressed. You know, feel depressed. It's like I don't have any energy. I'm getting old. I'm just sort of, you know, life is what, what do I have to look for now? <laughs> I remember thinking this when I was about 40 or something. I used to, I have, a, you know, unfortunately I have a very resourceful mind, you know, which always helps me quite a bit. And so I used to always look up to this example of like, it, like I remember a Christian nun called Sister Emmanuel. She was in, her, I think, in her 60. I mean, yes, so 60 was very, very old at the time. And she basically, at 60, she started a whole completely new career working in the slum of Cairo. 
<laughs> Carol. Ah, so isn't it amazing? You think 60, the end of the, the end of one's life, there is nothing is going to happen anymore. And then here's this nun, this lovely Christian nun, who just uh, decided after finishing a teaching kind of career, decided to start a whole new life. 60 in the slum of Cairo. You never think that for your retirement, would you? Comfort. A friend of mine told me after, from 40 onward, the mind is completely wired up to think about comfort. She was a teacher herself. And it's true. There's nothing wrong with that. Can't, don't need to blame ourselves for it. It's wired up. The body has less resources, less energy maybe than when we were 20. You know, so 40, some people escape this fate perhaps. But uh, you will see from a certain age, there's a tendency to um, look for things that are a little easier rather than difficult. So this, once you know that, you can actually even challenge your mind if you want to. You don't have to necessarily follow, you know, the, 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 the way we feel how nature affects us, you know. We can be affected, but we still work with it. And that brings sometimes amazing um, surprises. So um, notice that. You notice how... You, um, you know, how you bring up your children, how you relate to your husband, your wife, how you relate to the fact that some of you are, you know, getting on in age and so what, what is the end of one's life? You know, the last, last 20 years of one's life, what do you do? You know, some people get very, very miserable. As if it was supposed to be like that. So we assume that past a certain, you know, once you finish your career and you might just have nothing else to do except watch day coming, going, and just uh, just a sort of um, uh, death to look forward to. Hmm. So um, you can see how uh, I was considering that most of the misery of our life actually have so uh, their source is mostly, I would say, if not totally, in our lack of interpreting life correctly. We don't interpret facts correctly very often. You know, because why? Because our mind is not, um, hasn't been trained to interpret fact correctly. It takes something. Most of our interpretation comes from the sense of the emotional world, our emotional world, what I want, what I like, what pleases me, what makes me feel good and comfortable, what makes me feel powerful, intelligent, great, loved, happy. Have you noticed that? We are very attached to those things. We want to, you know, we want to be appreciated, want to be loved, we want to be successful, we want to be, um, you know, we, we would like to have a, a really an interesting life. We, we hope our children grow up and kind of further the possible success that we haven't quite had ourselves. We, we would like our, you know, the family to be this way or that way. We have a whole agenda for our life. And you notice that when this agenda is not fulfilled, what happens? You get very, very disappointed. We can get very disappointed, very, the, the sense that something is wrong with me. Something is, my life is doomed. <laughs> because I don't get what I want. So these are pure assumptions. Is it true? Is my life doomed because I don't get what I want? Is my life doomed because my children don't love me? Or oh, assume they don't love me? 
you know. <laughs> is, is my life, you know, doomed if, you know, my hair are getting grayer and grayer? I have to keep on kind of <laughs> getting into blue rinse. I'm just joking because I saw a pop group called Blue Rinse in France, in uh, Italy, and I, I was just visiting Italy recently, and they have a pop rock, rock group called Blue Rinse, and I wonder what that, what I was referring to. <laughs> what about maybe a bunch of old ladies, Italian ladies, kind of having a rock band or something? That's you know another assumption. <laughs> just funny, funny, a funny title. <clears throat> so, as this just an extraordinary topic, really, because until you know yourself, you find that most of the brain is functioning out of old programs. Haven't you noticed memories? Memories um, who find their source in our fears, maybe our terrible some of traumas we've had in past life. In this life, I'm not talking about any other life, but in childhood, perhaps. Maybe memory of, um, you know, situation that have, um, left us very uh, abandoned or very, um, uh, feeling very destroyed by, by, by a certain situation, you know. Um, many of, also, many of our, um, much of our life is also depending, very much, sorry, dependent in ourselves. We, we feel it's very dependent on, um, this, past program that came themselves from where? Ask yourself, where do they come from, those past programs? My mother, my father, my grandfather, my grandmother. And in this world which has uh, you know, turned into this massive global village where all cultures are mixing and inter- you know, mingling, intermingling, and you know, we're thinking, this is interesting. When I was in Thailand, you know, you get these rich kids that sent to America or, you know, somewhere, sort of boarding school in England. And, you know, and I was teaching at some point at the end of my stay there. I was teaching in the center a, a group of students who came to one of the main universities in Bangkok. And it was interesting. I was thinking the parents send their kids to America, which sounds so good for them, you know, so great, you know, rich kids, enough money to pay a boarding school, a private school, and so on. And then they come back, they're completely disorientated. They don't fit in anymore. They've had a few years of, you know, American culture freedom, leftover of the 60s and the baby boomers, and they just can't fit in, in their culture. I remember there was only... All my students looked like about half of their age, you know, they, well, not quite, but they were like 18, 20, you know, but they looked like 17, 16, 17 to me. And, uh, you know, and they were looking like angel, terribly, terribly polite, you know, like absolutely not, not a, not a thought, not of disturbing the status quo in any way, you know. But there was one that said, Mom, why do you shave your head? You know, it's interesting. Uh, she'd been to an American university. And nothing wrong with that, but she really stood out. <laughs> None of them would ever ask something like this, for one thing, because they are so accustomed to see the, to the sight of monks and nuns. It's just like, you know. So this is the 
kind of question we used to be asked in the early years in England and in America, you know, why do you shave your head? And actually this afternoon I had an answer for that. <laughs> so it was hygiene, you know. But we, when I was in Italy recently, we, we had bugs. I don't know where they came from. There's some, you know, in the monastery. We stayed a couple of nights in the monastery and we end up with lots of red spots everywhere. And I thought, mm, maybe the shaven head in India, mm, that might suddenly have something to do with debugging <laughs> the head, <laughs> preventing any kind of infections or whatever. So um, when we come, you know, go back to uh, this um, experience of, is our life real? Is our life rooted in reality? Is our mind actually seeing reality, hearing reality, thinking real? Or is our mind still very much conditioned and programmed by the past? And if you have had a lovely past, you know, it's not that bad, still, you never left off the hook, you know. The mind may have had nice memories, but it doesn't mean that greed, hatred, and illusion have been uprooted. So you're still on the bank wagon of <laughs> the past to deliverance from greed, hatred, and delusion. And so when you, you know, what one, one thing that drew me to Buddhism particularly was the fact that I could see for myself. I mean, I didn't even know I was doing Buddhism. I was doing that on my own, actually. Because I was actually uh, very much part of an academic world before I came, became a nun. I was a dancer, so I was not myself an academic, but I was surrounded by academics. And, um, you know, from a very young age, um, I actually married an academic. And I remember thinking, um, telling him, you know, I don't want to marry um, uh, a library. One of those library, you know, comes... Every week, how do you say library? A mobile, yeah. I don't want to marry a mobile library. Not right, you know. And um, because I was, you know, always felt that there was re something real in life. I had no idea what it was, but dance seemed to be the best thing to come my way. At least that was real. You know, kind of lots of sweating, lots of physical exercise, lots of effort and so on, and you didn't get anything unless you really put a lot of effort. And fortunately, a bit of passion into this, that helped a lot, you know. And so sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, didn't you miss, don't you miss dance? I say, no, no, I'm still dancing, don't worry, you know. In terms of the heart, the kind of the effect of the Dharma on me has the same effect, you know, it makes you alive, it makes you happy, it makes you, um, you know, strong and healthy and generally, you know, and it really um, uh, drew from oneself uh, the real love and what I call, I have to be careful the word I use here, the passion for life. Not that, um, you know, not the passion, instead the deluded passion, but this life force naturally that is opening up when you free your mind. And that is a beauty of the path, you know. People think, oh, if I, you know, let go of greed and hatred and delusion, you know, I'm going to fall asleep. There's nothing to do anymore. I said, don't worry about it. Just get on with the work and see what happens. You know? 
And so this teaching really has, um, you know, something very unusual for me, has always been unusual in the sense that not only we don't have to take on board a dogma, but the, 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 the Buddha is actually asking his disciples to question his own teaching. Why? There is a sutta somewhere uh, in which he asks one of his very famous senior monks. He's just been teaching. He has just been giving a, a teaching. And he turns to this monk and says, um, I think it was Sariputta. Sariputta, do you believe what I just said? And Sariputta said, no. And he says, if I remember correctly, Sariputta has understood my teaching. Now, say that to a guru, you know, to any, any teachers, would they respond like this? They say, you, well, I don't want to <laughs> imagine what somebody will be saying, but, or, you know, any supposition of my, in my mind, but isn't it freeing? I mean, for me, the effect of this response is something that I trust immediately. I can myself find out for myself whether what the Buddha is talking about is real and true or not. Isn't it amazingly liberating, even without coming to the end of any path, you know? The sense of inner freedom, the sense of inner kind of confidence in oneself, in one's own heart, mind. And it can be sometimes bewildering for people because you realize that you're left to discover all this on your own. Now, this word on your own can be, again, uh, easily uh, misrepresent the reality of the practice. And as I was reading uh, not long ago an article by a teacher, and I thought that was so right, and not very often people mention that, that to understand the Buddhist teaching, you're already really... Uh, it, you know, it's it's very helpful, if not maybe necessary, to have had some kind of inkling that, you know, there is a, 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 a mind that can see what you call the knowing mind, the aware mind, the conscious mind, you know. There is a, a quality of one's mind which is not, um, you know, which is not an identification to something. It's a mirror. It's more mirroring what's going on in your heart. And unless you have that dimension, it's very under, not easy to understand the Buddhist teaching. You know, you have, why do we want to let go of greed, hatred, and illusion? Some people are impassioned about greed, hatred, and illusion, thinks it's a, a passive, you know, a way of, way of life, work of art, even, you know. Ask, ask some of the French people I teach four times a, a, a year, you know. I mean, the one I teach are, you know, really interested in Buddhism, but, Many people there, you'll talk about you know, keeping the precepts or giving up alcohol or, you know, a bit of renunciation on a sensory level. They couldn't understand why their, you know, their, their way of life, which is so, quote unquote, um, refined and beautiful and sensorily, kind of on a sensory level, so, be- so amazing. Why should I, re- why should I let go of that? They haven't seen yet the result of their attachment to this way of life, and they're not even interested. So that's one of the reasons also I like, I particularly appreciate the Buddhist teaching, because it, 
as monks and nuns, for example, we are not, uh, you know, we are, we have some rules about not going to speak on Buddhism unless somebody asks a question or is interested. You know, you don't ask people to believe you, in other words. They have, first of all, to experience the result of their life, to understand what the Buddha is talking about. You cannot say so to somebody you suffer when they are not aware of suffering. You can't say to somebody you need to free your heart from greed, hatred, and delusion if they haven't seen any, uh, they don't have an inkling of what that means. Yeah? So it's obviously, obviously a kind of, a, it's like a ripening in the mind when you start seeing that what the world has to offer is not really what you want. Not, there's nothing wrong with the world. I had that experience when I was 30, you know, 29. And I was realizing it was very depressing that just to think that the world I was part of, I had to live for maybe another 70 years. Well, no, I didn't think that long actually. But certainly several decades ahead of me, to live in a world that had no attraction for me. Miserable, isn't it? What am I going to do? That really drew me to the path. I mean, I didn't even know I was moving that way, you know, but there was a lot of questioning. And that is one aspect of the, the teaching that is, um, for me, the most attractive, is that we can question everything. We don't have to take anything for granted. We don't have to believe anybody. And even when I was speaking to the Chansumi during the early years, you know, I didn't say that to him straight in his face because I didn't want to sound too rude, you know. But I used to say, well, that's good for you. or Maybe it's not, not for me. Not yet. I don't know what you're talking about, you know. But being French, you know what French are direct, so much more British these days, much more kind of polite <laughs> and kind of restrained in, in uh, you know, in my directness. But, yeah, but, you know, I've been training the mind for many years now. <laughs> so it's kind of more middle way. It's, more, it's got been more wisdom <laughs> to know when to say something and not. You know? But, um, and when you um, begin to inquire into what the Buddha taught, there are even more pr- profound assumptions that we have when we look into it. Nobody ever told me that things were impermanent for many years. I could experience things as being impermanent, but I didn't have any means to recognize what was happening. Or that things were unsatisfactory. I was desperately looking for the jewel of satisfaction, you know. What was going to satisfy me forever without doing anything? Ha ha ha. Just given, free, you know, because I... Um, deserved it. And that's the thing we, we, we often think like that. I deserve what I'm asking for, and then you get upset when you don't get it. You know, and I came to the community in the early years, you know, thinking of a rather kind of friendly person, quite socially adjusted, you know, socially friendly and so on. But maybe I'll get into this a bit later because another, you know, it's, a, it's part of the topic, but it's, it could go into uh, long stories. But, so imagine, you know, for those of you who live, were born in a Buddhist country, that's one thing, but most of us haven't been born in a Buddhist country. 
you know, all I knew is that not the same water goes under the bridge twice. I think it was, I don't know, maybe Heraclitus who said that. One of those Greek philosophers, pre-Socratic philosophers, you know, that's about it. There was no, no sort of Tao or the Tao or Buddhism or, you know, even the, the Eastern tradition in my early life, you know. So to discover that it is possible not only to discover, to find out that, um, there is, uh, this truth of change, the Dharma of change, the reality of change, and then the, uh, you know, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, things are dukkha. It's, um, you know, I think it's, it's a great blessing when you can see that dukkha, for me, I had an insight before I was a nun, which was very, uh, you know, just happened like that. I didn't ask for it. But suddenly I saw very clearly, and that, you could say that changed my life completely. I saw that, uh, dukkha or suffering was the flip side of joy. I had no idea, you know, just suddenly it was clear. There was no doubt. Dukkha was the flip side, was the other side of joy. I had no proof for that, but I, I started finding out what is it? What is that? You know, why suffering and joy? It was just an insight. They call it insight. You know, nothing special. Yes, just ordinary insight, and yet it's so ordinary we miss it. We don't see it. So, um, you know, I said there was no doubt. You see, that's it. That's it was part of me. You could say. And then I began to, you know, investigate life. You know, how is life, you know, what is it that brings me suffering? And how do I relate to this suffering? What is it that this suffering can increase suffering? And there's a suffering that actually free me from suffering. And that is something I discovered even in the suttas, you know, in the Buddhist teaching. Suddenly, the Buddha said, there's two kinds of suffering. Suffering that liberates you and the suffering that lead you into search, into freeing the heart, and there's a suffering that keeps piling up suffering. So, if you don't see Dhamma, this is a suffering, you know, that keeps accumulating suffering. You kind of pile up. And when you see Dhamma in your suffering, when you see suffering as Dhamma, you know, the reality of suffering, then it's freeing. You know, it's liberating. And maybe, you know, like, Probably many of us, there is a kind of uh, tendency to be, um, when I say, um, you know, when you like something, it begins a bit obsessive. You know, you really want it, you know, and your kind of mind goes into it, and you get interested into this, and you do everything you can to find more, more, possibly more. So for me, it was a dhamma. You know, suddenly I discovered that <laughs> I was quite greedy type. You know, so there's a wow. You know, joy and you know, suffering one side, joy on the other. My life is sorted out. That's it. You know, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I don't have anything else to do now. Because most of us want to be happy, don't we? We don't just want to be, you know, an, an eternal kind of moaning, um, you know, miserable um, creature. You know. And um, then the Buddha says, of course, uh, part of his teaching is that it's not self. Wow, what does that mean, not self? You know, feels very much like me. But it says it's not self. 
Okay? So it's very difficult to realize not self as long as there is a, you know, an attachment to self because a self asking if there is no self doesn't work. <laughs> it's not a, it's not, it's not an answer that's going to work, you know. You can ask yourself, you know, is there no self? It will not tell you there is no self. It's completely empowered and probably the most powerful force in oneself until you awaken to the delusion of self. Now, people say, are you sure there is no self? Doubt. What the Buddha is talking about, he never t- says that there is no self. He says it's not self. Okay? Not there is no self. This is another assumption. The Buddha says there is no soul, no self. Nihilistic. Buddha, you know, is nihilistic. The Buddha doesn't say there is no self. He says it's not self. Hmm. And I was very pleased when I listened to a teaching of an English monk who was a disciple of Ajahn Mahabua in Thailand, and uh, he gave some talk to the Western monks of uh, Lumpo Cha after he passed away, Lumpo Cha passed away. And it was so reassuring that, to hear Lumpo Panyawado saying, well, people say, you know, Buddhism, there's no self, no self, but there's plenty of selves coming up all the time. There's just no permanent self. And that is the crux, you know. To think you are a permanent person there, completely stuck in your personality, self, you, you know, and you're encased in that, you know, karmic box there, you know, conditioned box, and then you can't get out. So it doesn't say there is no self, there's no permanent self, you know. And personally, for me, I saw it that these teachings, it's not just, you don't believe in the teaching of the Buddha, from from what I understand, but you, you, you begin to apply it in your practice. In our practice, you could say the centerpiece of our life here is meditation, you know, founded by a very strong ethical standard, by uh, taking on board, uh, committing oneself to a very high standard of ethic. That would not work so well otherwise, because the mind needs to be really uh, harmonized with itself to start seeing things as they are. If the mind is constantly in a state of conflict, constantly restless, constantly agitated, confused, through external action that one performs, you know, then it's very difficult to have enough kind of calm, enough kind of steadiness to just sit and observe the mind. So when you look at that, how many of us have believed, even in, even when you live in Buddhist countries, you know, I, I still hear friends here from Sri Lanka or Thailand, you know, bemoaning the fact that their children are changing and growing up and not being the way they used to be and they're losing their, you know, their, their love for their parents and they marry somebody else from another tradition and so on and Terrible, you know, that things are changing, you know. So what do you expect? The Buddha did say things change. So you come to a Buddhist country, a Western country now, with, you know, have lived the era of interfaith for the last 30, 40 years, you know, where interfaith became a very, 
important topics in society, there you are. You've got Muslim marrying Arab, uh, marrying Jewish people, uh, you know, Hindu marrying uh, atheist, <laughs> and so on. The list could be long. Yeah. So, um, these three characteristics the Buddha, you know, are sort of, um, demonstrate, I mean, sort of demonstrate for us that uh, through his own enlightenment, he discovered that all phenomena in the universe had three characteristics. And those three characteristics are anicca, impermanence, uh, dukkha, uh, suffering or insatisfactoriness or that which is difficult to bear or um Janama will find a, a new translation which I hadn't heard. Do you remember Anna? That was no no. Anyway, divided duke and ka something. Anyway, I can't remember the meaning uh its translation. But you get this the sense what this dukkha is actually the One Thai monk said something quite interesting. I was trying to remember it correctly, and he said, like, it's either pleasure is a wavering of pain, or pain is a wavering of pleasure, but they are both interconnected. When you have happiness, you will have its opposite. As long as you attach to your happiness, as long as attachment's there, you would have the mind going up and down. If happiness come its way naturally and you let it pass naturally, then you don't have the ups and downs. There's no attachment at that moment. When it's there, you enjoy it. When it's not there, you enjoy it. Right? And so, um, when we, um, you know, when, we, when we are looking at our mind, which becomes, the, you know, truly, the source of the world we are part of, you know, you, you begin to take full responsibility of what's happening in you, what you do, what you think, what you feel, what you, how you present yourself to the world, you know. And we have a lot of help these days. There's a Dharma, of course, but on, you know, psychology is a huge um, part of our Mind, you know, the mind is made up of time and thoughts and feelings and moods and so on, you know, the whole human psychology. And we have a certain amount of knowledge nowadays and a certain amount of understanding of the various problems that a mind that is, um, you know, um, the psychology of the mind, you know, how we can be uh, conditioned by certain things depending on certain causes and certain situation and certain uh, relationship we've had in the past and how we have been brought up and so on. Uh, the, the, you know, in the, in Asia, the, maybe in the West as well, I'm not so aware of this, but basically we, we don't come here on our own. You know, we have, you know, parents, the, the, the influence of the parents, the influence of the grandparents and all the elders and the ancients behind us. So, um, the psychological aspect we can be dealt, you know, uh, through psychotherapy, psycho, you know, studying psychology. There's many, many, as, you know, many means nowadays to discover 
what the world of psychology, the world of thought, the world of stories, the world of why these stories and not that stories, why do I get stuck in certain things, why do I get, uh, you know, feeling a lack of confidence, why do I feel, uh, you know, I'm not strong enough, why do I feel that uh, people don't like me, why do I feel... So there's a lot of knowledge about these things which are still, a lot of the time, assumptions. We're not necessarily absolutely true for everybody, you know, until we discover for ourselves whether it's true or not, you know. Maybe our father was terrible or our mother was terrible and we are this or that way because we had, you know, really very severe parents or maybe too liberal parents, you know. For whatever education we had, you know, we have been, we, 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 the, the result of the past is still influencing us now. You know, whether we come from England, France, Jamaica, Germany, Africa, or wherever, you know, we still carry that influence in ourselves. But what is um, wonderful is that the Buddhist path is there for us to really pick up, take on board, and start developing in ourselves the quality in the mind that are going to be supporting the path of liberation. You know, it's actually, uh, it's, it's like a, a scaffolding for us to be able to uh, walk the path. You know, otherwise we tend to sink through the law of gravity or lethargy, don't we? We tend to sink. So if you think of suffering, when you think about suffering now, instead of moaning and begrudging the suffering, for example, you start looking at it as a scaffolding for liberation. You know, you start beginning to see that whatever you experience that's not very happy in your life, you can actually bring onto it the, um, you know, the, 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 the light of mindfulness, the torch of mindfulness on it. And then instead of sinking with your experience, you begin to waken up, to awaken, you know. For example, myself, if I feel really sleepy and a bit kind of dull and a bit, you know, instead of beating myself up for, you know, thinking I should be different, I start meditating with it. But meditating is a big word. You know, I, I, it was obvious the Buddha never used the word meditation, by the way. Do you realize that? He never used the word meditation. It's pavana, development. You develop the mind. And the mind is not just the brain with its thoughts and its mood and its feeling. The mind is also everything you do with you through action and speech. You know, your mind manifests also through your actions and through your speech. If you're unconscious, the body doesn't move and your tongue doesn't move either. Remember that? Yeah? It needs a brain. It needs a computer, basically, to make everything move. Which means, and, and, and the software and the hardware, you know, programs all your thoughts and all your feelings and all your stories and all that, creating the world you live in. So if you have a poor me inside, then that's what you get. And if you have, you know, I hate them, I hate their guts, that's what you get. People start feeling funny after a while if you hate them for too long. You know, that's when we take responsibility. We realize that we carry the world. It's not even our world. After a while, it's not my world, it's the world. And don't ask me to defi- not def- define this. 
just the more you, you, more you walk the path, the more you, you realize that uh, th this mind is not yours. It's not yours, it's not mine. Right? That's easier to carry, isn't it? Mind that's not mine. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we just don't take responsibility for it. The reason why you discovered it's not really your mind is because you've taken so much responsibility for looking after it in a real way with the reality of the Dharma. The reality of seeing things as they are rather than imagining and living on presumption. You know. My mom loved me when I was a young person. You know. And then suddenly you find that goes. What do you do? You feel very lost, lost, don't you? Yeah, my family loved me and my family disappears. So we're very dependent on the way we create the world. We, we're dependent on very much past conditioning, past stories, past experience, past m memory and so on, you know. And the Buddha is not, um, you know, trying to destroy all this. It's just a, really a, a, a journey of awakening and understanding. That's what I love this teaching is because it does um, ask, require, for, it requires from you a full participation in the field of inquiry that you are invited to make. You know, to not, not, not to make a field of inquiry, sorry, you're invited to participate in this field of inquiry. And when this happened, then life become very alive and fun. You know, it's like, it's like, we are, you know, we are really, uh, if you look at all the human beings that surround you, I mean, just me and my community here, we tend to think, we assume, for example, that people understand us, don't we? Don't we? I've told her that three times and she still doesn't understand. You just assume that they have the same understanding as you. So it's normal. Why, why don't they understand me? I made, I made it very clear. I've said it three times. Still didn't get it. So the immediate response, say, what an idiot, you know. That's the immediate deluded response, you know. What an idiot. So suddenly you, re you realize that maybe you didn't explain it so well yourself. If you go back a little bit, you know, what did I say and how I said it, you know. I said now to some people, you know, when your emotional charge is so enormous, people just get completely overwhelmed by your emotions and they can't hear you, sorry. That's my experience and the experience of others. You know, you don't realize that when you talk to people with an emotional charge that just completely blasts them, we don't, it's like, the image that comes to me is like, it's funny image, it's like in a car you have these airbags, you know. <laughs> it's like an airbag just coming to you but not to not to secure your life. It's just just the airbag without any reason, no reason for it. It just stifles you. So you have to be careful when people don't understand you. It's not you know, it could be that they you know living in a different planet, you know. But also that maybe you um, the way you spoke yourself, communicated, you know, did not enable the right the the correct hearing of what you said. 
Or, um, you know, here we have an enormous, I mean, it's a vast amount of different nationalities. You've got the German and the French and the Swedish and the Danish and the English and the American, and it's about 26 nationalities, I think, yeah. I was somewhere around, you know, at least during uh, the meetings we had. So you know how culturally bound we are, you know. If you are British, you know you have a certain thing you do and you don't. The same thing with the French in a different ways. Same thing with the, you know, with Africans. Same thing, or same thing with Russians. Same thing with, you know, we all have our cultural identity. And what works in one country doesn't work in another, you know. And what do we do? We assume that everybody should be British, don't we? When we judge, that's it. That's it. That's clear. It's an assumption. They should be like me because that's, that's a good way to be. Isn't it? Huh? Or they should be like Sri Lankan, you know, Sri Lankan. My children should still bow to me and recite me a little gatha every morning to tell me how grateful they are to me, like they do in Sri Lanka. She's a beautiful, beautiful ritual. But by the time they've gone to the comprehensive school or the, you know, or the, they're just not made for it, you know, that's it. They've lost, they've lost the tradition. <laughs> it may be unfortunate. It's always lovely to express gratitude to one's parents, but, and it's certainly needed in the, in this Western part, you know, of the world. We need to develop much more sense of respect and gratitude to our parents, which, um, has become quite, you know, not very often. We do that when we are young. And then you, um, and then the, 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 you know, the meditation is, um, as I said, the centerpiece of our, um, investigate, you know, the mean to investigate the mind, the mean to actually find out what this mind is, is about, what goes on in this mind. How can you develop, for example, the faculty of, you know, to be able to develop the capacity to concentrate the mind, to develop the capacity to open the mind, develop the capacity to, um, to see clearly when you're confused, to not make a problem when you are miserable. You know, so you begin to see that you're taking refuge, you're going to refuge, what we call the, the refuge of the quote-unquote the Buddha, you know, internal refuge of the Buddha, is a capacity to see what is going on without reacting. Without reacting. Because reactions, again, come from past conditioning. Why do we react to something? We must know what's, what it does to us, otherwise we would not respond. You know, if I did not know what it was, I would not respond. So, look at the mind that is, um, you know, to look at the mind that's reactive is really interesting. Because those reactions actually takes us away, uh, sorry, take us away from what? From the real. By this, I mean, from the mind that is seeing things as new, fresh, untarnished, unconditioned. You can see your conditioning, but you don't act on it. The part of the mind that is aware, conscious, sees, and is not moved by what goes on inside. 
is not moved. When you're moved, it means you're already identified with what is inside your, you know, your heart, mind. Yeah? So it's important to reflect on the uh, suffering that comes from misapprehension, misperception, you know, assumption, ideas, theory we have about things. But is it really uh, connected with what, what the reality of now, the reality that is with you? It takes a lot of wise reflection to harmonize your one's own baggage and reality of in front of us. It takes the capacity to reflect on things, you know. How am I going to deal with um, a group of people? Maybe that gives me, give me a hard time. Don't understand me or, um, you know, make me feel small or make me feel disheartened, you know. So the normal sort of response, the uncultivated response or the untrained mind response is that, oh, it's their fault. They are doing this to me. Assumption. They are doing this to me. Well, they may be doing this to you, but my experience is I allow them to do this to me as well. What is going on in me allows them to be the way they are. That was one of my most important moment of the way, you know, most important realization at some point is I am also responsible for what happens to me, of course. And what goes on inside create the world outside, you know. Is that's the beauty of meditation is that you begin to have some handle on what you see inside yourself in your heart. And you don't need to squash anything that's inside. We don't need to pretend we are not, you know, don't have any presumption. We don't have any ideas about things or how should, you know, how things should be, how people should be and so on. You can look at that and start questioning. Do I need this should and shouldn't to live in the here and now and the reality of now? Do I need all these things? Is it necessary? Why do I need these things? You know, Many years, few years before I became a nun, I remember reading a text of Krishnamurti when he said, you know, in which he said, thoughts are fear. Interesting statements, very small statements, isn't it? Nothing very serious. But for me, it hit, really hit a nerves, nerve. You know, suddenly I woke up to this and said, oh, thoughts are fear. That's an interesting statement. What does he mean by this? And when I was really investigating and really looking into this, what I began to see is that when I got what I want, I never thought very much. I was just happy. You notice that? I had a kind of a brain holiday, you know. When I had an ice cream or I had nice experiences, good friends around me, I never thought of thinking about it. You know, it's like, oh, I enjoyed it. You know, it's like fun, you know. My mind stopped. You know? Oh, great. And I noticed when I was not there, suddenly my mind said, oh, no, what am I going to do for the future? Oh my God, I did all this for the past. I'm going to be doomed for the future. You know, what's going to happen? Go on and on and on and on about worry and anxiety and planning for the future. These things might never happen and then you worry even more. You know, we, we are creating suffering that leads on to more suffering. 
rather than suffering, they come to the end of suffering. And one of the, you know, one of the main teachings of the Buddha was, you know, there is the, the Four Noble Truths, as, you know, as many of you know already. But I won't go into details with this Four Noble Truths right now. Basically, it's a teaching of recognizing suffering and realizing, realizing the end of suffering, you know. And, um, one of the, um, you know, one of the most important thing to deal with your, the, the tendency to have, you know, to, to believe, you know, your assumption is the mind, is the fact that the mind doesn't have any other way to function. It doesn't have much choice. And the only time you give choice for the mind is when you train the way Achen Sumedho trained us for many, many years. Being at peace with a don't know mind. I don't know. But I think he's like that. I look at that. He's looking at me. I'm sure he doesn't like me or, or she's, she's, she's talking to somebody. I'm sure she's talking about me. You know, that kind of presumption. You know. And you can, th- we can think like that. One doesn't need to suppress and oppress ourselves. But you start saying, I don't know. I don't know. It's amazing training. It's so liberating. Because at some point, there are many things we don't know. And you can be at peace with the fact that you don't know. In fact, the don't know mind, for me, is the, the biggest mind I have. It is not encumbered by a lot of stuff. Don't know mind is like, okay. Some people will call it, it's a face mind. It's like the mind don't know and it's okay. And just keep going. Don't know don't know. And of course you think, if I don't know, if I don't do something, if I don't create something, if I know self, I'll be dead. There's nothing happening in my life. I can't function like that. It's not possible. I've got to be somebody going somewhere, doing something. Even if it's just being depressed, at least something. Better than nothing. We do that to ourselves. Do you know that? We can stuff ourselves with food and feel really sick for days just simply because we need to do something. That can happen in monastic life, you know. You think monks and nuns are sweet little kind of happy, angelic looking <laughs> human beings, don't you? Sometimes. <laughs> But a lot of our life is looking at a mind that is really, um, you could say, under the spotlight. And it's like, get me out of here, get me out of here. I don't, I don't want to be seen the way I am. I don't want to be seen the way I am. Don't, no, no. So you eat and drink and do something to distract yourself and back the spotlight of mindfulness starts again, you know. No, I don't want to see too much, you know. I don't want to see all my fear. I'm going to go crazy. But that's a path, you know. And one of the, um, one of the reasons for having this very important foundation in ethic is not just to make you just sweet and loving characters, you know. Not for that. It's because it's to enable your mind to continue its journey to enlightenment, you know. Enable your 
consciousness to let go of unnecessary things. To be at peace with, I don't know. We live in a very materialistic world which tend to market everything. We've got to be fitting models and we have to be little sort of, uh, uh, you know, characters that just fit in the materialistic society. Do we, do we have to do this? If you ask yourself, do we have to? We don't have to. But it happens, doesn't it? Because we're influenced by the environment we're part of. You don't see many monks and nuns dressed like this in the middle of London, do you? Because in the middle of London, you're into fashion. Makeups, you know, nice stylish hairstyle. If you came here in that way with high heels and highly made up, it would look strange. But you wouldn't have to judge it necessarily. It's just not quite fitting the, <laughs> the scene, you know. So, um, if you consider that assumptions are made up of past conditionings, past memories, past thoughts, past stories, then, as I said at the beginning, we're pretty full of it, only full of these things. Assuming, you know, that we know something when we don't. <laughs> when you live in community, you have people coming to you, you know, is that? I mean, now things are a bit, I don't know, from my point of view, it's a bit calmer these days, but, uh, <laughs> come to sort you out, you know, and uh, find that. I'm sure I've done that to other people myself, you know. When we live together, it's like a family, you know. We just uh, have to be even more careful, you know, because we can easily uh, relax, you know, and be, uh, you know, it could be uh, like family. We just <laughs> talk to the children the way we talk to our parents, the way we, you know, we, we need some distance to respect each other and to uh, be able to give space for each other to be the way they are you know, free, without, you know, anybody trying to make you the way they want you to be, or they want you to um, to speak or to talk or to act, you know. So it's, a, you know, it's quite a fine edge of living in the present, being conscious, being aware, and, uh, you know, together with developing skills of right speech and acting in accord with reality, with Dhamma, acting with compassion, with uh, friendliness, with patience, with generosity, with kindness, and so on. So these are, you know, the, the Noble Eightfold Path, and the fourth Noble Truth is, uh, gives you a real uh, clear um, structures to, um, uh, to, to guide you all along your life and along your journey throughout your life. So I leave you on that. Now we have about 15 minutes uh, until about 20 past. We'll have a break. You can have a cup of tea or some water as you wish. And then as some of you know from the past years, uh, we'll have time for question and answer. And I'll be very happy to
answer when I can. Yes, thank you. <laughs>